And please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis, we are in chapter 29. Genesis 29. So if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that spiritual growth is something that happens in fits and starts. Uh, It's not that you, you know, one day become a Christian and then boom, you're suddenly everything that you should be. Uh, or, or that you just have a, a one-time spiritual mountaintop experience. You know, you go to some conference, you read some book, uh, and, and something happens. You have this intense moment, and then you just immediately kind of level up, immediately jump to the, the next level, and then it's just smooth sailing from here on out. And, and, and maybe that, that does happen for a few hours or for the next few days. But then other realities come and other realities hit hard and the same sins that you dealt with in the past, they come back and suddenly you find that that, that high of that, ex, uh, that spiritual experience has faded, you've fallen off the mountain and now you're in a painful valley. That describes something of Jacob's experience. Last week we considered uh, chapter 28 where we found Jacob at first in a dark and desperate and lonely place. He was on the run. He was in exile. He was fearing for his life, and it was all his fault. Jacob, whose name means deceiver, lived up to his name and, and, and proved to be the self-sufficient liar and expert con artist that he is when, instead of trusting in God's promises, he managed to swindle the birthright and the blessing and the inheritance away from his brother Esau. And so Esau, plotting revenge, seeks to murder Jacob. And their mom, Rebekah, convinces her husband to send Jacob away for a little while. Uh, back to her brother Laban's home, nearly 500 miles away in Haran, in Padanaram, to find a wife, which becomes a convenient convenient excuse to get Jacob out of there and and allow Esau some time to cool off. And then the plan is is that that when it blows over, she'd send back for her son and and him and his new bride would return home. And, And Jacob, en route to Haran, suddenly has a spiritual mountaintop experience, surely one of the most amazing mountaintop experiences that anybody has ever had. Jacob encounters God. And and in Jacob's neediest moment, God gives him a revelation, affirming promises of his care, his protection, his provision, his blessing, and most importantly, his presence. And, And through him, the entire world would be blessed. Through Jacob, we discover that the great promise in Genesis 3.15 would be fulfilled, the promise that one day the Savior, the offspring of the woman would come into the world and crush the serpent, crush the devil, and undo the curse of sin and death that grips the world. And so, in Genesis 28, God affirms that Jacob, the special chosen offspring of Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob is the heir of the promise. In a, in a very real sense, Jacob is the, the, the hope of the world rests on Jacob's shoulders. Jacob of all people. Jacob the deceiver. Jacob the trickster. Jacob the rebel. Jacob the sinner. And God has extended grace and mercy to this man, and Jacob is blown away. And, and so we saw at the end of chapter 28 that for, for the first time in his life, Jacob worships God. Jacob is converted. 
And so, uh, and so then for the rest of his life, it was just smooth sailing, no more sin, and one mountaintop after another, right? Is that how it goes with Jacob? Is that how it goes in your life? Of course not. Uh, yes, Jacob experienced a, a measure of change that night, but not totally. Far from it. Uh, Jacob had a lot more growth to experience, a lot more lessons to learn before he can be all that God wants him to be. And so what one one night mountaintop experience at Bethel could not do, a 20-year difficult experience in Haran would do. A 20-year valley in the wake of the mountaintop. You see, chapter 28 shows us that God loved Jacob right where he was, as he was, but chapters 29 through 35 are going to tell us that, Jacob, that God loved Jacob too much to leave him where he was. God's end goal for every one of his children, God's end goal for Jacob, God's end goal for you is to be just like him in holiness, in purity, in goodness of character. And every single one of us upon first coming to the Lord are like Jacob in that we come to him with lots of blind spots and lots of rough edges. There is no such thing as a believer who comes to faith that is not a diamond in the rough and and just has it all together. The Christian life is not one of immediate perfection. Christian life is a process. And he loves me and he loves you too much to leave you on your own as you are. God said to Jacob in chapter 28, I am with you, I will keep you, and I will not leave you. That's true in the mountaintops And that's certainly true in the valleys. So let's begin to leave the mountaintop with Jacob. And and, and this week and and, and then the weeks to come, we'll descend with him into the valley. But through everything, we're going to see the hand of God in all of this working through his providence. So please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the Word of God. This is a, a custom here at Harbin's. We have you stand before we read the sermon text as a reminder that this is not just the word of any old person. This is the word of the living God, and these words that are coming forth that you're going to hear have the exact same kind of authority over you as if Jesus Christ was standing right here in front of you saying these words. This is Genesis chapter 29. We'll read the entire chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We're from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his, his mother's brother, 
Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast, but... In the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. And Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years years. Let's pray together. Father, this is your holy and inspired word, and I pray that through your Spirit you would help us to hear the message that you have for your people this morning. Give me strength as I preach it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, these chapters just keep getting more and more interesting. Uh, This passage can be divided up into four major scenes. Uh, The first scene is uh, we have Jacob searching for a bride. Jacob searches for a bride. Uh, Verse 1 says, then Jacob went on his journey. Literally, the Hebrew there is saying that Jacob picked up his feet, uh, which may indicate uh, that in the wake of the mountaintop experience of chapter 28, there's a renewed sense of eagerness and vigor and enthusiasm, a little extra pep in his step. Uh, because, uh, but because Jacob is just like you and me with a hard heart and a hard head, uh, the afterglow of the mountaintop experience wears off. We, we fall back into old habits. We fall back into old ways of living, and it becomes evident that we still have many lessons to learn, a lot of rough edges that need to be smoothed away. Well, in verse 2, Jacob encounters a well. And Moses really wants to, uh, to highlight this because he uses the word, Behold! <laughs> Uh, Moses wants to draw our attention to this scene and not rush over it. Because in the context of this book, what's about to unfold is unusual. Uh, Things are just going to, quote, happen to line up perfectly. 
Uh, Lots of coincidences are about to happen here. He arrives at a well, and there just happens to be shepherds there, and they just happen to be from Haran, his destination. They just happen to know Laban, the household that Jacob is seeking. And as the conversation is going, uh, Rachel just happens to come along at just the right time. And of course, biblically speaking, there's no such thing as coincidence or happenstance. Instead, God sovereignly is orchestrating all the details of life according to his providence. And so, even though God's name doesn't appear once in this chapter, it's clear that his fingerprints are all over the situation, and he's brought Jacob to the right place at the right time. As the proverb says, a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Well, here we see in this verse the, uh, the incredible twin realities of man's capacity to make choices on the one hand as he se- seeks to accomplish his purpose, and yet on the other hand, God is sovereignly working behind the scenes to accomplish his purpose. <clears throat> it's exactly what we, we see unfolding here. And by the way, Proverbs 16.9 should give the believer tremendous peace and comfort as we navigate our lives, that no matter what happens whether we make good choices or whether we make bad choices, wise choices or foolish choices, nothing ever short circuits God's plan. That doesn't mean that we should just casually and irresponsibly float through life. Well, well, God's got it all, so I'm just going to just kind of mindlessly wander here. That's that's not the case. But, But in the end, our final hope in life cannot be in us making sure our plans are established and that our plans better be perfect lest we mess up God's plan. Some people live that way. Lots of fear and anxiety. Instead, we're to, live, we're to live with the peace that comes when we embrace and submit to the great truth found in Proverbs 19.21 that many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So Moses here wants us to clearly recognize the hand of God in all of the little coincidences that are about to unfold. In addition, Moses is writing this episode counting on the fact that you're paying attention to his book and that you remember what happened just a few chapters back in in chapter 24 that gives the account of how Jacob's father Isaac found his bride, Rebekah. And there's remarkable similarities between chapter 24 and chapter 29. A long journey to Haran, uh, an arrival at a well, uh, the, the arrival of the woman at just the right time, an encounter with Laban. Right, we see all of that in Genesis 24. As with Genesis 29, God's providential hand behind the scenes was all over that situation as well. Those are remarkable similarities. But in a moment, we're going to see that those similarities actually serve to highlight some drastic differences. There are some differences between 24 and 29 that we'll take a look at shortly. But for now, everything seems to be paralleling Genesis 24 on the spot. And you have to wonder if if Jacob, who would have heard the story of how mom and dad got got together, if uh, he has that story in the back of his mind. Especially when in in verse 6, the shepherds draw Jacob's attention to Rachel, who just happens to be arriving with the flocks. And this, at this point, this is where Jacob begins to go off the deep end. If this were a movie, if this were a movie, this would be the part where the scene would suddenly go into slow motion when he sees her. And you would hear the orchestra just playing some sort of sweeping romantic theme. The strings are going. There would be a close-up of Jacob staring dumbfounded, his mouth open. As, as Rachel is coming, still in slow motion, 
slowly approaching and surrounded by all of these sheep. You can't get much more romantic than that. Incredible moments. But, but seriously, though, it's clear from this entire chapter that Jacob is completely smitten by Rachel. Before even a word is spoken between them, he's got stars in his eyes. And he knows right away, this is his dream girl. This is the one for him. Which leads to the next scene where Jacob shows off for a bride. Jacob shows off for a bride. So we learn in verse 3 that there is a large stone over this well. Uh, It would have been a heavy stone. Stones like this uh, would have probably required two or three men to roll away. And there's a little bit of humor in this part of the story because you've got at least two, if not more, shepherds that are sitting around right now. There's probably enough of them to roll the stone. They really come across as a bit lazy. They're just all sitting around. Kind of like when you're driving down the road and you see all the construction workers just kind of standing there on the side of the road and you're like, what, what's going on there? Maybe one guy's doing something and nobody else is. Now, if you ever had a job like that, I'm sure you were working. But you all know what I'm talking about. And they're just kind of hanging out there. But, but none of this seems to bother Jacob until Rachel comes on the scene. As soon as Jacob notices the beautiful shepherdess approaching, he says in verse 7, behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. You see what Jacob's trying to do here? Ladies, are you catching what's going on here? Guys, is there anything in this tactic that you recognize back in the day, back when you were a player? Uh, uh, does this look familiar uh, when, when there was a, a girl that you liked that was around? Obviously, Jacob is trying to get rid of these guys, right? He, he wants to be alone with Rachel. And so it's, it's, he's, you know, he's having a casual chit-chat with these guys, but as soon as he sees her, all of a sudden he starts bossing them around and trying to get them to do their job and just and scram, beat it, get out of here. It's funny because in the beginning, Jacob is all nice and cordial. He calls them brothers. But as soon as he notices her, he gets aggressive, and everything turns into an alpha dog contest. But these shepherds aren't getting the hint. Or they are, and they are stubborn. And they're thinking, well, who, who's this guy? Who does this guy think he is? Verse 8, they, they give their little excuse here. We, we can't water all the flocks. Uh, uh, we can't water until all the flocks are gathered together and the stones roll from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. They, they say they've got this custom. Everybody has to get here first. And then, and then we'll do that. Again, probably there's not enough people here to roll the stone, but uh, surely they don't need an entire squad of shepherds to do this. But they dig in their heels. But again, Rachel's appearance changes everything. And we're told in verse 10 that as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. By the way, so he's seeing a pretty girl, and he's seeing lots of wealth. Right? Cute girl, lots of sheep. Hmm. All right. That's the girl for me. And Jacob comes near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Notice he didn't water anybody else's flock. And Jacob takes matters into his own hands, literally, right? Stone's here, you know, kind of warming up, doing some calisthenics, and then he takes care of it himself. Unless we've been tempted to think that Jacob was a wimp, 
You know, we, we've talked about this contrast between Jacob and Esau, right? When you, think of it, when you think of Esau, Esau, rough, gruff, manly, aggressive, hunter type, right? Jacob, the quiet, domestic type, at home, more of a mama's boy. Y'all, Jacob could whip any man in this room. No problem. Jacob had extraordinary strength, surely augmented by adrenaline and testosterone and his drive to impress Rachel. And he is in this moment able to do what normally takes two or three guys to do. Rachel's looking, y'all. This is the time to flex. This is such a guy thing. You men know exactly what I'm talking about. When I'm engaged in physical activity, which is very rare for me these days, trust me, but there have been times where I've been doing something as simple as shooting hoops, playing cornhole, and if I think Dana is watching, I'm really going to try to up my game, which is meaningless because I have no game. But guys, you know what I mean. I really understand what, what Jacob is doing here. I can imagine Rachel is amused by what's going on, this, this strange guy out of nowhere bossing the shepherds around and then making this big display of physical strength. But her amusement would turn to shock, I think, in verse 11, right? He moves this huge rock, and then, in the exhilaration of the moment, he kisses her. And then, this strange and freakishly strong man starts bawling. Ladies, would that not freak you out? Some commentators downplay the kiss. And they say, well, there's nothing romantic or forward about this. This is common for relatives to greet one another with a kiss, and, and he's just excited to, 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 and relieved to make it to his destination after a long journey. But folks, she doesn't even know that they're relatives yet. They really haven't even spoken any words, and he comes, and he, and he does this thing, and he starts crying. It's audacious. By the way, single guys, please don't try this on the girls. Girls, if someone tries this on you, call the cops. In verse 12, Jacob finally explains who he is. Oh, by the way, he explains who he is, and, at la- and, and, and Rachel now, now puts two and two together, and now e- even she seems to be emotionally caught up in the moment. She leaves her sheep behind. Not a good shepherdess in that moment. She leaves her sheep behind, runs to tell her father. Now, we learn a few things about Jacob here other than the fact that he's really strong and good at showing off for the ladies. As similar as uh, chapters 29 and 24 are, the differences are even more significant. And they say a lot about Jacob, and they don't say anything good. For example, in chapter 24, it's, it's Abraham's servant, not Isaac, who journeys to Badanaram to find the bride for his master. And, and when the servant arrived at his destination, the first thing he did was pray. And he asked God to bless his endeavors and give him guidance and give him success. And when God providentially gave him success, he, in Genesis 24, 26, worshiped the Lord, and he's praising God, and he's giving thanks. And in Genesis 24, 35, when he's having dinner with Laban and and the family, he talks about the Lord. He testifies to them about God's kindness and God's promises and God's faithfulness. He really is being a witness to Laban and his family. 
And, and Abraham's servant, first and foremost, has God and the mission of God on his mind. That drives everything. The whole story in Genesis 24 is utterly God-centered. And so is Abraham's humble servant. He is God-centered. But in chapter 29 with Jacob, there is zero humility. There is zero prayer to God. There's no prayer for guidance. There's no testimony of God's faithfulness and God's provision and God's mission. There's no praise in God. Instead, we see, we see Jacob flexing and showing off, bossing around shepherds, trying to impress a cute girl, trying to manipulate the shepherds into leaving, putting his strength on display. He's making it all about him. Y'all, this is vintage Jacob. It's all about Jacob and his strength. And, and what he's doing is opposed to the Lord. Jacob would have done well to walk in the way described in Psalm 37, 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him. The implication in that verse is that if you're not putting God at the center of your plans and the center of your decision-making, you really don't trust God. And if you don't trust God, it means you're trusting yourself and your own instincts and feelings instead of God's principles and God's promises. That's exactly how Jacob has been living his whole life. Uh, we even see this in his choosing of Rachel. If you remember in Genesis 24, Abraham's servant prayed that God would bring a girl of exemplary character to Isaac, for Isaac. And, and even though Rebekah was attractive, he nevertheless gave Rebekah a specific character test to gauge her humility and servant attitude. That was of prime importance to the servant. Only when Rebecca passed the character test did the servant determine that she would be a prime candidate for Isaac. But Jacob, Jacob's interest in Rachel is exclusively based on his feelings in the moment. He's impressed by her beauty for sure, but that's all he's got to go on. That's going to be underscored again in just a few verses. And so, Jacob continues to live life driven by what seems good and what seems right in his own eyes. He has yet to understand the principle of Proverbs 3 that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. But regardless, God's providence is working. God's providence is always working and is moving things in such a way that Jacob will experience anything but healing, anything but refreshment. Instead, much affliction and toil is on the horizon through the hand of his uncle Laban. And that leads to the next scene where Jacob serves for a bride. Jacob serves for a bride. In verse 13, Laban runs enthusiastically to meet Jacob. Now, Laban is not a good guy. He is a swindler. He is a scoundrel. He is a totally greedy man. He is a master trickster. In other words, he is just like Jacob, except he's older, which means he's had more time to hone his craft. Now, the first time we met Laban was back in Genesis 24, where Abraham's servant traveled to Padanaram. And if you remember, Abraham's servant came with a lot of wealth. Great gifts for Rebecca and for the whole family, and, 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 he, and he put a gold ring on Rebecca's finger, golden bracelets on her arms. And we're told in Genesis 24:30 that Laban came out, and as soon as he saw the bling that Rebecca was wearing, he immediately went to his ser the, the servant, which is an early hint that Laban has a sharp eye for gold and is drawn 
to money. Now, we know Abraham was really rich. We know he was really generous. And you can be sure that when Laban gave up Rebekah for Isaac to marry, he made out pretty well in the deal. No question about that. Now, flash forward to our text today, Genesis 29, 13. Is it any wonder when Laban hears that Abraham's grandson is in town looking for a wife? Is it any wonder now that Laban is running out and warmly greeting and kissing Jacob? And I can see in my mind's eye Laban embracing his nephew. Oh, it's great to see you while kind of looking over his shoulder to, to look for the, the, the camels and the caravans and all of the wealth that would be there like last time. But he sees nothing. Because remember, Jacob left home with nothing. Just a walking staff. But Laban, clever Laban, won't let this opportunity go to waste. Uh, no doubt he quickly learns that Jacob was a shepherd himself back home, and he's heard of Jacob's incredible physical strength. He's obviously a hard worker who has easily shown up those other lazy shepherds, and, and Jacob, homeless and without a penny to his name, is at Laban's mercy. And so Laban bides his time until he can find a way to get Jacob under his thumb. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't see lots of gold or other signs of wealth, but he does see a really strong, hard worker. Many scholars see a hint of dark undertones in Laban's comment in verse 14, uh, where after becoming acquainted with Jacob, he declares, surely you are my bone and my flesh. It could be that Laban is not merely saying, hey, we're related. Instead, the comment could have deeper connotations like, you and me, we're the same. We're cut from the same cloth. Laban sees something of himself in Jacob's nature, and sometimes the adage is true that it takes one to know one, and even in that little statement could be an early warning of things to come in regards to Jacob's dealings with his uncle. Well, Laban takes his nephew in, and after about a, a month, Laban has a proposition for Jacob. Verse 15, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, on the surface, what Laban says seems generous and magnanimous, doesn't it? But in reality, he's seeking to further entangle and use Jacob, but Jacob misses this. From Jacob's side, he sees this as an opportunity to get the thing he wants more than anything else. And we see in verse 16 that Jacob isn't even thinking about money or flocks as his wage. So as Jacob considers what he can get in exchange for his labor, Moses uh, draws our attention to the two daughters of Laban. And what's interesting is that as Moses is writing this, he doesn't focus on the character of the girls, but their physical appearance. He says, Leah had weak eyes. Now, there's some debate over what that means. It's probably an idiom, but whatever it is, it's not meant to be flattering. Uh, one of the things that was prized in the ancient Near East was the sparkle or the fire in a woman's eyes, and it could be that Leah lacked that quality. Regardless here, the idea, the point is, is that she's nowhere near as beautiful, as, as pretty as, as Rachel. Moses says she's beautiful in form, Rachel's beautiful in form and appearance. Right after that, we're told that Jacob loved Rachel. And again, we get the idea here that Jacob is more impressed and driven by consideration of Rachel's physical qualities as opposed to her character and her spiritual qualities. 
This is not to say that Jacob never developed a more mature, grown-up kind of love for Rachel beyond a schoolboy crush. And we'll see later that till Jacob's dying day, Rachel holds a special and exclusive place in his heart. Even later on in Genesis 48, I believe, just thinking about her as an old man after she has passed away. But right now, he's taking the wrong things into consideration. Um, single folks, teenagers, take note of that. Take note of that. Jacob agrees to serve Laban in exchange for Rachel. You see, unlike Abraham's servant, Jacob has no dowry, no bride price to offer Laban. In the ancient Near East, every member of the household was of critical importance to the running and the maintenance and the management of the home. The women worked as hard as the men, and Rachel was a shepherdess managing Laban's flocks. And so the bride price is not purchasing a wife as much as it is compensating the family for the loss of an important worker. But again, Jacob's empty-handed. And so all he can do is, is pay Laban through his services, compensate him that way. And they agree to seven years of service. And folks, Laban is getting a bargain there. And so verse 20 tells us that Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. That's a sweet comment. Jacob is completely smitten. And I think the feeling is mutual, uh, that the time is flying by because of the pleasure in their relationship. This wouldn't be the case if Rachel hated him. Now, Jacob, of all people, should have recognized that something was amiss with Laban. But remember, Jacob is prayerless. He's driven by his own wisdom. All right, he's making decisions based on, on, on things that seem right to him. And the problem with intense romantic love is that it can blind your common sense. Again, single folks, young folks, take note of that. Listen to the guidance of parents and godly people. You don't know what you're doing. I say that in love. Anyway, it all seems like a sweet love story as God has been working all things together in his providence. But then the next scene happens. Jacob is swindled out of a bride. Jacob is swindled out of a bride. So Jacob searches for a bride. Jacob shows off for a bride. Jacob serves for a bride. Now Jacob is swindled out of a bride. In verse 21, the seven years are complete. Jacob marks off the final day off that calendar. I'm sure he's been just, you know, with his, with his little sharpie every day. Getting closer, getting closer, getting closer. Now he's here. And he lets Laban know that the time is now, and he's ready to get married and consummate the marriage. And so it says in verse 22, Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. Now the Hebrew word implies a drinking feast, and that's not insignificant because you've probably been wondering how in the world could Laban pull off the stunt that he's about to pull off? Well, lots of wine certainly would help, don't you think? And I can imagine during the party, Laban keeps coming over to Jacob's table and topping off his glass all night long. Hey, Jacob, have a little bit more. Hey, Jacob, your cup's getting low. Hey, Jacob, this is a celebration. More wine at Jacob's table. Here, here. Drink up. In addition, per custom, the bride would have been veiled as, as she was presented to, to, to Jacob as the father brought her to the groom and as they retired to the tent to consummate the marriage. In addition, when they retired to the tent, it would have been dark. Now, now, think about this. Back then, there were no light, night lights. 
There's no glow of digital clocks, no cell phones. In the ancient Near East, when it's dark, it is dark. And so the night passes. And I can imagine the scene as the sun rises. It's peaceful outside. The rays from the sun gently coming down on Jacob's tents. Maybe just some birds chirping in the background, otherwise totally quiet outside. Until the peaceful quiet of the moment is pierced by an ear-shattering scream from within the tent that could be heard from the entire camp. Ah! In verse 25, Moses is more discreet. He writes, and in the morning, behold, there's that word again, behold. <laughs> behold! There was some beholding going on. Behold! It was Leah! Ah! You have to wonder, why did Leah go along with this? We don't know for sure. Could be that she was bullied by Laban. Laban is a bully. We'll see more of that later. Or perhaps knowing that she was less attractive than Rachel with dwindling prospects, perhaps she went along with it, believing this could be the only way she could secure a husband. But either way, it's really sad. Really sad. Just as sad as Rachel's situation. Where's she during the festivities? Probably locked away in a closet somewhere. I can only imagine her, her fury as she could hear the celebrations in the distance as the man whom she was pledged to would be marrying her sister. Laban is awful, y'all. A manipulator, a schemer, a user, using all these people as little chess pieces in his twisted little game to get the things that he wants. Jacob, Jacob, the great trickster, has met his match in Laban. Jacob has been effectively Jacobed. As Jacob and his mother once deceived his blind father to usurp his brother, Laban and Leah deceived Jacob, who was blinded by the bridal veil, the darkness, the wine, as Leah usurps her sister. Rebekah disguised Jacob in order to appear to be Esau, deceiving Isaac. And here, Laban disguises Leah in order to appear as Rachel, deceiving Jacob. While Isaac unintentionally blesses Jacob, thinking he's Esau, Jacob unintentionally marries Leah, thinking she's Rachel. In Genesis 27, Jacob pulled off the greatest con job of all time until chapter 29. Jacob had the record until 29, where Laban one-ups Jacob in an even more spectacular display of trickery. And you can't help but think of the Scripture that says, whatever you sow, that you will reap. Or to put it in modern vernacular, what goes around, comes around. And Jacob is outraged. Verse 25, Jacob said to Laban, I'm sure with bald fist, red, and ready to throw down. What is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you, and here comes the word, wait for it, why have you deceived me? <laughs> that verb, 
deceived is related to the word used to describe Jacob's deception of Isaac back in chapter 27. For the first time ever, Jacob can actually empathize with those who felt the sting of his treachery. For the first time, he can feel something of what Esau must have felt like, but even more so because Esau despised his birthright, but Jacob loved Rachel above all other women. But there's a measure of hypocrisy in Jacob's outrage as he seems incredulous that someone would actually do something so heinous. He probably doesn't see the irony in that in the heat of the moment. I would think, though, that upon later reflection, he connects the dots. But for now, as Jacob tries to laughably assume moral high ground, Laban, the only one who's been able to one-up Jacob in manipulation, suddenly he projects moral outrage towards Jacob. This guy's a piece of work. Verse 26, Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. I don't know, Jacob, how people do things where you're from, which your people are like, but, but around these parts, we're respectable folk. Uh, we don't do things like that. This is amazing. Laban is the only one that is able to go toe-to-toe with Jacob and win. And, but now Laban's about to give the coup de grace. A knockout blow. But listen, Jacob, listen, listen, listen. Despite what you've done, I'm a reasonable man. And I don't want you to be treated unfairly because of your uncouth ways. So I have a solution. I have a great solution that'll work out. It'll be a win-win. Verse 27. Complete the week of this one. In other words, finish out the week of celebrations in a honeymoon period with Leah. Do that, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob has been effectively backed into a corner. He loves this woman, and so he agrees. Verse 30, Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. And you notice what it doesn't say this time about the seven years? It doesn't say that it seemed as if it was only a few days. Because Jacob now is entering into a time of enormous difficulty. A a, a toiling of of 20 years for Laban, because he he actually spends another six years with him after the the first 14. 20 years of toil and, and sharing a tent with these two women, only one he really loved. And these two sisters will hate each other. They'll despise each other. They'll be in competition with one another. And he's torn between them. And we're going to see in the next chapter that we've got a couple of other women, the servants of these women, that are thrown into the mix as well. And Jacob will begin to see the turmoil and the strife that he participated in in his own past life with the fighting and the favoritism and the one-upmanship and the manipulative, manipulative scheming, all of that is now coming back around again in this new family that he's trying to establish. It's going to be a hard and painful time for him as his past finally catches up to him. What goes around comes around. Now, often when people say that, <clears throat> they're thinking in terms of karma. <laughs> 
like, like there's some impersonal force in the universe. And, and, and when you do bad, it just happens to, it just eventually bounces back on you somehow. But when the Bible speaks of reaping what you sow, it's not speaking about some impersonal law that is governing the universe. Instead, God is involved in all of the details. And God, in His wisdom, determines how and when and to what extent we reap what we sow. Because as God's people, we aren't living under the umbrella of of mindless, impersonal uh, karma. The news is better. We are instead living under the eye of a watchful, caring, and loving Father. As it says in Proverbs 3, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. It doesn't say karma. Don't despise karma. Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Jacob is being disciplined by God, not because God hates him, but because God loves him and God delights in him. God made a promise in Genesis 28 and he intends to keep it. He promised to provide for Jacob and to keep Jacob and to be with Jacob and to never leave Jacob. And in Genesis 29, as God disciplines Jacob, this is one way that God is keeping his promise. Jacob may have forgotten about God, but God hasn't forgotten about Jacob. And in the difficulty that you are going through, know that God loves you and God delights in you. And, and even when you forget God, God has not forgotten you. Of course, it's not, it's not that every difficulty that you face is a direct result of your personal sin. Certainly, we see some dots we can connect with Jacob, but, but not, not all of God's discipline comes for that reason. But all of it is painful. All of it is tough spiritual training. As God files away, files off those rough edges around our hearts to make us more and more and more like Him. And God God knows the kind of tools that He needs to help us. And sometimes the means that God uses to discipline us is through other people. For Jacob, it was Laban. Some of you have people in your life who are difficult. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's someone you you feel is opposing you and keeping you from getting the things that you want. Maybe it's someone who's just plain irritating and being around them is like nails on a chalkboard. But you've got to be around them. I wonder if there's a, a Laban in your life. Could it be that your interactions with that person are revealing things that are in your heart, things that are in your character that need to be dealt with? that there are certain sinful tendencies that you have that would never be exposed and dealt with if not for your dealings with that person. Maybe you're like, man, I, I, I'm, I'm fine when I'm around everybody else, but man, when I'm, when I'm around this person, just, uh, just, the, I, just this ugliness comes out of me. What's, what's going on there? That's, that's the mercy of God coming into your life. Brothers and sisters, God is not allowing difficult people into your life because He hates you and because He enjoys making you miserable. Instead, the Scriptures are showing you that all the things that come into your life, whether they be people or circumstances, whether they be good or bad, 
whether through God's pleasant providence or through his painful providence. All of these things are being used by God for a purpose, to conform you, to make you, to shape you into the beautiful image of Christ. Because we know, the Apostle Paul says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Sometimes we, we misinterpret or misapply that verse and, and we, we think about God working all things together for good and we, we interpret the good as like just the things that I want to happen. <laughs> Pleasant things, success on the job, you know, whatever it might be. But, but if you read this carefully, the, the ultimate good here is, is, the, is being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. I mean, what, what thing could happen to you that's better than that? Than being like the Lord. This is the goal. This is the end game for all of God's people. It might not be your end game, but it's God's. He, he loves you, and he wants what's best for you. He loves us enough to receive us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. Because the worst thing in the world would be for God to leave us as selfish swindlers and liars and sinners forever, that would not be heaven, that would be hell. And God knows that a one-night mountaintop experience at Bethel cannot do for us what 20 years in the wilderness of Padanaram can do. And if that's what it takes, so be it. Because it's worth it. It's how God deals with all of His people But here's the most critical thing to remember in all of this. And that, and you've got to get this, that that your path, your path to Christ's conformity doesn't begin with your suffering. It began with His. Earlier I said that the hope of the world is on Jacob's shoulders. (laughs) But not in the sense that, that he is the hope. But instead, it would be through his offspring, many centuries later, that Jesus Christ, the son of Jacob, the son of God, would come into the world. Jacob was a liar. Jesus is the truth. Jacob came seeking a bride. That's exactly why Jesus came. And just as Jacob met a woman at a well, so did Jesus. And while Jacob was able to show off great physical strength, Jesus did something better when he turned to this woman and he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman says to him, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And at that point in the conversation, I can almost see an amused glimmer in Jesus' eye and a smile forming on his lips. <laughs> Are you greater than our father Jacob? And Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is greater than Jacob. And he did a much greater feat of strength to win his bride, which is the church. Jesus went to the cross. Though he wasn't a sinner, 
He represented sinners and took on their sin, experiencing the full force of God's wrath for those sins, dying for swindlers like Jacob and sinners like us, paying the full price for our sins so that we wouldn't have to pay for them ourselves in hell forever. Jesus suffered more than any person who has ever lived. Why? So that we might be changed and conformed to His image. And the ultimate proof that Jesus is greater and stronger than Jacob is not rolling a little stone from a well, but actually getting up after he had been murdered and the stone of his tomb having been rolled away, he emerges from the tomb victorious over sin and death. That is a feat of strength worthy of the bride. And so everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus, believing that his suffering on the cross is sufficient to pay for sins, can not only experience forgiveness of sins, but enjoy the living water that Jesus offers. Jacob could only refresh Rachel's flocks, but the water Jesus offers brings refreshment and satisfaction to the soul. And for the one who rejects the salvation that Jesus offers, every bit of suffering in this life is only a foretaste of a greater torment to come. But, but the good news is, is that for the one who humbles himself and receives Jesus, Jacob's greater son, every bit of suffering we endure is not destroying us, but is instead molding us and shaping us into his beautiful image. Because as God promised Jacob, so he promises us that he will be with us, that he will keep us, that he will never leave us, Even when we forget him, he never forgets us because he is faithful to see his promises through to the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this word that reminds us of the incredible providence of God. Both pleasant providences and painful providences are coming to us from the hand of a God who is loving and wise and compassionate, and one who knows exactly what he is doing. Thank you so much for that. Father, there are many here that are experiencing suffering in different ways. Father, I pray that you would strengthen my brothers and my sisters during their time of affliction. Oh, that you would bear them up, Father, that you would hold them up, Father, and that they would experience your loving care your loving care and your, your compassion and your strength during this time, Father. And Father, we thank you that as much as we have suffered, your Son has suffered infinitely more than us for us. And we thank you so much for that, Lord. And we thank you that even though when we first come to faith in the Lord, <laughs> We're not everything that we should be, and that though we have indwelling sin and many lessons to learn, we lay hold of the promise that He who began a good work in us will complete that work. Father, help us to hope in that. You're working even now, and that working is leading us to a glorious destination that we do not deserve, but that You are generously giving to us anyway. Thank you so much, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.